Jesus said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there among them. What do you think that means? What do you think Jesus meant by those words? Pretty often when I hear those words or say those words, I hear those words being invoked to justify the validity or the significance of an unexpectedly small gathering. Imagine a parish workday in which only a few volunteers show up and the rector says, you know where two or three are gathered together, Jesus says, or worse, a Bible study in the middle of the week and only one student who has to listen to the rector drone on, or a midweek service where only the altar guild member is there, where two or three are gathered together, Jesus said. We said those words to remind ourselves that God shows up even when most of us don't. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. I don't think Jesus intended these words as encouragement for disappointingly small groups. I think Jesus meant for us to recognize the tremendous power that his presence offers when any more than two of us figure out a way to set aside our differences and come together in unity. There's an independent Jewish teaching that was recorded about the same time as Jesus's earthly ministry, and it helps us hear Jesus's words in a fuller way because they're so similar. In the Mishnah known as Pirkei Avot, or Chapters of the Fathers, Rabbi Hananiah taught If two sit together and there are no words of Torah spoken between them, then this is a session of scorners. But if two sit together and there are words of Torah spoken between them, then the Shekinah abides among them. The Shekinah is the divine presence the dwelling or the settling of God that was experienced in the burning bush, in the cloud that covered Mount Sinai, that was said to dwell in the Jerusalem temple. And yet the Mishnah teaches us that that same Shekinah, that same divine presence is here whenever two or three are at a table and the word of God is spoken. Later in the same Mishnah, Rabbi Shimon taught, if three have eaten at one table and have not spoken words of Torah, it is as if they had offered, they had eaten food offered to the dead. As it is said, for all tables are full of filthy vomit when the all-present is absent. What beautiful language from so long ago. But, Rabbi Shimon continues, but if three have eaten at one table and have spoken the words of Torah, it is as if they had eaten at the table of the all-present. Blessed be he. As it is said, and he said unto me, this is the table unto the Lord. In other words, Wherever two or three are gathered at a table and the word of God is invoked among them there, the very presence of the Almighty dwells. That ordinary eating table becomes the table of God, the place where God, God's self, sits 
to join us. Doesn't that sound a lot like what we do when we get together on a Sunday morning? We come together at this table in Jesus' name, sharing God's word in order that the fullness of the divine presence might dwell here among us. This is holy ground. The communion of Christ's body and blood that we share is more than a symbol, a reminder of what Christ did for us. It's more than a weekly opportunity to be formed deeper in our faith. This communion is even more than a sacramental encounter that conveys to us the grace of forgiveness and the grace of unity. It is here, in this place, at this table, that we meet Almighty God. This is where Jesus sits among us. And just as Jesus is present here with us, so too in this Eucharist do we ascend to the heavenly places where we sit at the table with God. This is not only our foretaste of the heavenly banquet, this is our living participation in that heavenly banquet. And if that's true, if God meets us here, if Jesus shows up, then we have to take pretty seriously the manner in which we gather together. Jesus said, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. Now, if the word church sounds a little funny on the lips of Jesus, who died and was raised and ascended into heaven before the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost and started this thing we called church, it is a little funny. In fact, Matthew is the only one who writes a gospel account and uses the word church. Paul uses it a lot in his letters. Acts uses it because that's after Pentecost. Matthew is the only one who uses the word church. And you might remember that he used it two weeks ago when he said to Peter, you are the rock on which I will build my church. And this is the only other time that Jesus speaks that word. I think Matthew chooses that word because he wants to get our attention and he wants us to know that these instructions aren't just for those 12 disciples, but they're for us as well. Because the word church, ecclesia, to use the fancy term, you probably see it on billboards. Churches love to call themselves the ecclesia without really appreciating what it perhaps means. But the ecclesia means the called out ones. Within a generation of Jesus' ascending into heaven, Christians began to use that term for themselves. We are the called out ones because we know that we are the ones whom Jesus has called out to live a very particular and peculiar way of life. Not only to gather together on Sunday and share the same stories, but through the Spirit's power to seek God's help in living out Christ's example. That means that like shepherds who go off in search of lost sheep, those in this community who recognize when someone has gone astray are called to go out and find them. If another member of the church has sinned against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, then you have regained that one. Notice how the instructions Jesus gives us for taking this 
task to heart begin in a way that confronts the transgression but minimizes the shame. It starts quiet, small, just one person. Because the goal is always restoration to the community. If you are not listened to Jesus continue, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. At each step, that circle, that desire for reconciliation expands and grows in the hope that more people will bring the lost sibling back. That's not easy work for us to do. Not least of all because Jesus says it is the one who was offended that's supposed to take the initiative and seek out the one who has broken the trust of the community. Jesus doesn't simply tell us that we're supposed to welcome back someone who finds their way here again. Jesus says we are the ones to go and seek them out, even if it costs us something to do so. Now, there are limits to this. When someone's physical or emotional safety are at risk. But when it's just our egos that are vulnerable, which is often the case, it's still hard to confront someone who has hurt us and do so not with the desire for further estrangement, but with the heartfelt, earnest desire for reconciliation and return. But sometimes there is no amount of persuading that can convince someone to repent and to return. What do we do then, Jesus, if the offender refuses to listen even to the church? Let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. I have hope that just as Matthew, the tax collector, find a seat found a seat at Jesus' table, that there is no sinner beyond God's grace and mercy. But I don't think Jesus intended these words as a backdoor opportunity for a recalcitrant sinner to find their way back without doing the hard work of repentance and reconciliation. Because even though we must always leave the door open for someone who comes back, no matter how long it has been, If we're going to be a community defined by the one who reconciles the world to God and to each other, then we have to take the work of reconciliation seriously. This cannot be an experience of God's presence, a gathering of two or three in which Jesus is here among us if we are not committed to the hard and holy work of reconciliation. Otherwise, this is merely a session of scorners, a gathering that undermines the very principle and identity that we claim to be ours. Jesus wants us to see that the connection between what happens here in this place is true not only in the earthly sense, but that that connection with what is heavenly rings true as well. Whatever we bind on earth will be bound in heaven, Jesus tells us. Whatever we loose will be loosed in heaven. That's not magic. Jesus wasn't simply teaching Peter and his successors how to let people go of sin. It's a powerful insight to the way that God works. It's a reminder that how we practice 
Repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation here on earth is a manifestation of how we live together in heaven because those are not separate realities divided by the veil between this life and the next. They are two glimpses of the same truth. We might wonder then whether that is asking too much of us. Jesus is calling us into the hard work of reconciliation that cost him his life. Jesus is telling us that the work we do here has eternal significance. Is that asking too much of us? How are we ever going to do that impossible work that Jesus is giving us to do? The good news of our faith is that in the cross of Jesus Christ, God has set us free from the power of sin and death from the power of ego and pride, from the power of fear and stubbornness. The connection between reconciliation in heaven and on earth doesn't just flow in one direction. In Christ, God has already made us whole. We are fully reconciled to God. We are restored. And the truth of that restoration pours down upon us with limitless abundance. All our frailty, all our self-doubt, all our weakness, all our vanity, all of those things that make us want to clamp down and say no when asked to forgive or to accept forgiveness, all of them have been nailed to the cross of Christ. All that is left in the eyes of God is a renewed, restored, reconciled child unconditionally loved and universally accepted. That is who you are because that is how God loves you. That is the gift that God has given us. Nothing can ever take that away from you. Only because we are loved like that can we love others in the same way. Thanks be to God. Amen.